Um, today we've got uh, Gareth with us, who's the uh, Director of External Affairs. Uh, that sounds an interesting title, doesn't it? Uh, but we're really delighted you're with us, uh, Gareth. And a lot of us have heard lots about CAP, but we've got a lot to learn. And uh, with the, the needs that are going on in our culture today, we know this is an invaluable ministry. And so we're delighted, delighted you're here. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm really glad that I can make it here speaking with you. Um, my name is Gareth McNabb. I'm Director of External Affairs. Uh, and what that means is um, my team are responsible for what we think about social issues in the UK, uh, what, how our, we would analyse what some of those problems are and what we would propose as some of the solutions. Um, we're responsible for elevating and escalating the issues that our clients face every day to those in power and policymakers, and then making the, sure they understand the vital importance of them doing something about it. So there's a bit of stats, there's a bit of stories, um, and then because I preach occasionally at church, the third thing has to start with S as well, doesn't it? Uh, so there'll be a little bit of strategy development that we're doing. A, a genuine alliteration. Um, uh, <laughs> most of my sermons, like that third point, is a really fake alliteration. Um, so I'll have some stats for you, some stories for you, and a bit of strategy development, because um, CAP isn't necessarily all you thought it was, or at least it's more than maybe you thought it was. Um, and uh, maybe something that I share with you in the next half hour, 40 minutes or so, with a little bit of participation, will help you uh, be inspired to want to join us in seeing an end to UK poverty. Uh, I think it's doable and I definitely think it's desirable. Um, uh, maybe uh, you'll hear aspects of our work at CAP. Maybe you're more familiar with our service provision and our debt advice service or our other uh, services provided through the church in partnership with good people like you. Um, maybe something of what my team do will be brand new for you and hopefully you'll be excited. Yes, I can see some excitement. Uh, so um, I'm a human being, um, so we'll get to that before I get into the work stuff so I can just get in the flow of speaking to you. I'm married to Liz, we've been married nearly 20 years, uh, she's wearing it much better than I am. Um, my, we've got three children, uh, Sam, Rosie and Noah, uh, 14, 12 and 9. Um, Rosie, my 12 year old, is uh, making me laugh at the moment, she, she's quite secretive, 12 year old girls can be like that can't they? And um, she finally let me in on what she's been listening to on TikTok all this time. Daddy, have you heard of a band called the Arctic Monkeys? And I'm like, tell me some more, Rosie. Because I'm like, yeah, about 20 years ago, I used to be into them, but it's brand new for her. Um, so that's my, uh, my family. We live just outside of Kettering, uh, part of a church in, uh, in Kettering there. Um, we moved from uh, Coventry six-ish uh, years ago um, and very much loving life, committed to the local church, but with big ambitions. God promised me something nearly 15 years ago, 16 years ago, and this was his promise to me, that on my deathbed I would look back and see that I've had the same impact on debt and poverty as Wilberforce had on slavery. And it gets that response from believers and unbelievers. I once told the, the chief executive of Nationwide where I used to work that exact quote, not quite with the God told me bit. I thought that might freak him out a little bit. This audience, I think I could pull that one. Um, I told him that, and it was near the end of a meeting. You know when you're in a meeting, everybody's bored and it's come to a lull and it clearly he wants the phone conversation to finish. And I told him that. We were chatting for another 40 minutes and he invited me to lead a £3 million programme of social investment using technology to solve problems for the poor. Look what God's word does. God makes a way, doesn't he? He is the God of the breakthrough. And so it's been my delight for 15, 16 years to want to see his kingdom come and an end to poverty by working in the private sector. I uh, understood at the age of 22, 23, I never wanted to work for a church. It seemed like the most boring thing in the world. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've come to learn it's, def it's far from boring. Um, it's still not something I want to be doing because I want to be having an influence outside of the walls of a building and outside of a, one particular local place. God gives gifts according to his will for the common good, doesn't he? And so it's a case of well, may God bless you and what he's called you to do. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what he's called me to do. And hey, maybe we can partner. Can you wave at me if you know absolutely nothing about Christians Against Poverty? You've never heard of us. You haven't been anywhere near the stand with my colleague in the green T-shirt. You know who we are. You know some of the services we provide. Great. Okay. Um, for the sake of the recording, I'll give you the headline, uh, which is that uh, we're a ministry 25 years old, uh, tail end of last year, that's been working to deliver debt advice in partnership with local churches for all of that time. And over the course of that time, have begun to develop other courses in partnership with local churches, like the CAP Money course, budgeting skills, um, 
the UK Church, in partnership with CAP, is the single largest provider of face-to-face -face financial education in the UK. It's amazing, isn't it? Go church. Thank you, Jesus. Why is it the church? Like, if Martin Lewis is writing textbooks for secondary schools, and the church with CAP is the largest provider of skills to the adult education, uh, to, to adults. Like, I love the, the way God's church fills in the gaps in society and shows what his kingdom can look like, but I do think it weird, personally, that it's even necessary because everyone's banging the drum, financial education. It's the answer to all of our problems, isn't it, according to some. Um, so why, why, is, why is the adult bit almost entirely being left to the church? Very happy to step up. Thank you for the opportunity, God. Um, but just a little comment on the way the world's working. Um, uh, the other skills uh, courses that we run would be the life skills course, which some of you may have come across. A friend on the front row is nodding. Uh, so how do you live life on a chronically low budget over time? Um, we've been blessed with some remarks from various government ministers in the last couple of weeks as to how that might be done. Um, very little of that content is on the life skills course because we know just how deep and long those problems last. And it's not as simple as switch to Aldi, is it? Um, and our jobs clubs, uh, partnering uh, with uh, churches to deliver skills and employability skills, CV writing and all that kind of stuff, helping the long-term unemployed into work. Uh, I think last week it was eight people uh, into work. The average length of time that they've been out of work was 16 months. That was the average uh, across the eight of them. You can't find very many non-faith-based employability courses that are having the kind of results with the long-term unemployed than you can the job clubs. Everything we do in partnership with a local church. I want to show you the quote that got me going on caring about poverty. Um, and you may not be able to read it. I'll say it because recording and all that. Do what you can with what you have where you are, said Theodore Roosevelt. It sounds a little bit like that slightly more religious sounding one from John Wesley about um, give all you can, save all you can, earn all you can, a few others. But this one got me. It was a nice three points. Do what you can with what you have where you are. I'd come across some stats in my home city of Coventry that frightened me. After a couple of years of the food bank being going, nearly 10% or the equivalent of 10% of the city had been through its doors. 10% of a top, Coventry likes to think of itself as a top 10 city, 12th actually in the league tables, um, had been through the doors. And that number just beggared belief. Uh, and it seemed really large, and I didn't know what I could do. And, and I went into that quiet place of, oh, God, <laughs> what on earth do you do about something so big? And I was flicking through a book, and this quote jumped off the page of me. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Sounds an awful lot like, I gave you some talents. What are you going to do with it? And with my background in financial services and my commitment to the local church, it seemed right that I explore how might I use that financial services experience with the church for the sake of the city. Uh, so I explored setting up a credit union and discovered Coventry's already got two good ones. Why would the church step in and do a third? So the next thing to look at was debt advice. And while there was debt advice in the city of Coventry back then, this is 2007-ish, the last, last but one financial crash about to happen, um, there wasn't any that served people in their homes and there wasn't any that served people outside in nine to five and there wasn't any delivered in community like with friends and neighbors and volunteers it was a very professional service but you had to join the queue of shame uh, on the on the morning and if you were 41st in the queue you didn't get enough of the tickets like you do from the meat counter at tesco's so you had to come back the next day and that just felt like poverty all over right the lack of dignity like poverty is more than not enough money isn't it it's just like not enough humanity, not enough dignity, not enough of what God intended when he birthed creation. Uh, and so this quote just got me going. I thought, okay, well, what, how do you set up a debt advice organization? How do you set up a debt advice ministry? And thankfully, CAP and uh, Community Money Advice uh, were there to help us. We set, uh, we set one up in our city. It was really small, and then I had to shut it. But in that time, I learned some key skills. I made some key contacts. I became a trustee at Coventry Citizens Advice Bureau. Um, I got tapped on the shoulder by uh, a senior leader at the Coventry Building Society where I was working, and he said, Gareth, you've got an unusual interest in personal debt, I must say, um, and we need some help in our collections department. Would you come and help? And that was a bit hard. Christian joins a, becomes a debt collector. Um, but I figured, doing what I can with what I have where I am, might this be God's leading? And I figured, well, 
if debts have to be collected, they may as well be collected fairly and justly and compassionately and with a way of supporting human beings through the difficulties that they're going through. So I said yes to the job and my career's just gone nuts uh, since then. Um, spending a number of years at Nationwide Building Society looking to coordinate that programme I told you that Joe Garner invited me to, to lead, um, looking to try and deploy the resources of Nationwide Building Society and other financial services organisations for the sake of the people that those businesses don't tend to exist to serve. What a lot of fun and a much bigger budget than most of you church leaders have too. So one of the perks of realising I never want to work for a church, I might get a bit more budget to be, able to be the change I want to see in the world. I've kind of described uh, to others what my job has been as being to help people understand more and care more so that they can do more to solve the problems that people in poverty face. And that's kind of what external affairs at Christian Against Poverty exist to do, to help people under everywhere understand more and care more so that they might do more to meet the needs of those in poverty. And later I'll mention about our refreshed vision uh, that doesn't just want to meet the needs of people in poverty. We just don't think poverty should exist. It's an evil. It's not from our God. It's not from heaven. It's from the other place. And it can go in Jesus' name. Who's with me? <laughs> uh, so let me give you some stats. I promise you some stats. Um, 22% of the UK population is in poverty. Uh, that means a good few people in this room by the stats. Um, five years ago, 22% of the UK population was in poverty. And five years before that, 22% of the UK population was in poverty. Frightening, isn't it? All of the big ideas of man, um, even the church, cap's been around 25 years, not really made a dent in that number yet, yet, but 22% of the UK population is in poverty. When you get into the measurements, there's different ways to skin a cat, there's different ways to measure poverty, but by no single measure has poverty gone down in the last 10 years. Um, the most insightful measurement on poverty has come from the Social Metrics Commission, uh, which was chaired by Baroness Philippa Stroud, that some of you uh, may know of from some church circles, um, running the Everything Conference with her husband David in London. Um, They've, they've understood, and so have Joseph Rountree Foundation, that there are some populations of people who have moved in and out of poverty, but it's about 200,000 in and 200,000 out, but the bulk of the number has stayed the same, and most of the people in that number have stayed in poverty through most of that time. So it's not a case of there's a flow through. There's one and a half plus million of our brothers and sisters in this country in persistent and deep poverty. Let me tell you something about the depth of that poverty. 10% of our clients are rationing their food daily. Um, one in four, that's at least weekly. So a quarter, at least once a week, are thinking twice before they put some food on a plate. 15% uh, of our CAP clients are rationing their heat daily. And again, uh, that's a quarter, at least weekly, and nearly half, at least monthly, are experiencing that. It's described as the impossible choice, isn't it? Heat and eat and... It rhymes, so it flows off the tip of the tongue, but I think sometimes that means it can come across a little bit glib sometimes, can't it? Heating versus eating. I mean, how desperate must we be to be happy with an economy that's the fifth largest in the world and uh, all of these great promises from leaders in every one of the nations in the UK um, and yet half of my clients are making considerations that I don't ever have to make. A third of our clients in the last year have attempted or considered suicide as a way out of their debt. And when you get to see some of the levels of debt they're in, some of the debt collection tactics deployed by uh, industries of all kinds of sectors and our government, who are the biggest and most forceful of debt collectors in the nation, it's not actually a poor choice. Like it's a legitimate option when you have nothing and yet are being chased for any, ev anything and everything you have left. It's a consideration that most humans would get to because of the depths of the despair and calls to us at the highest since before the pandemic. And that, that's going to be what we say every month for the rest of this year and into next year. In the last month, our new inquiries team can't remember the last time a client rang and had any credit on their prepayment meter for their energy. Almost every client, every new client that called us in the last uh, month had less than three pounds on their prepayment meter and needed an emergency top up to tide them through from calling us to the first time that our center manager could get out to help them. That's very, very different. That's up 60, 70% on this time last year. 
Um, and it is quite frightening that the idea that we can book you an appointment in the future for somebody from your church, to co- a church near you, to come out and help you with your debts, and in the meantime, you're going to starve or be freezing. No, we deploy emergency support through uh, grant schemes, through fuel bank vouchers, through food bank vouchers, um, and, uh, and the glory and generosity of the church. But it's quite frightening, isn't it? Uh, interestingly, those numbers, the rationing numbers, the um, one in four rationing the food and heat at least weekly, um, it was lower than that last year, as in during 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, but when everyone on universal credit was getting £20 a week extra because of the additional costs of the pandemic. So those numbers, very similar to what they were the year before the pandemic. And so I could say to you, we're back to pre-pandemic levels. We definitely, definitely aren't, because I took this survey in December of last year, and since then we've seen um, fuel bills go up by £700 for the average household in April, and they'll go up again by £400-plus again for the average household in October. Uh, we've seen uh, national insurance uh, rise for people on, uh, well, for everyone, but then a fiddling in the mass to make sure people on less than 30 grand a year aren't impacted. So my story isn't that we're back to pre-pandemic levels of poverty. My story is twofold. Number one, it's worse than it was before the pandemic and it's getting worse, much worse fast. But also, number two, we know how to stop this happening. We have levers within our reach as human beings, as a society in the UK, to reduce every single one of those numbers. We just have to want to. And that's part of our job at External Affairs, to help people in power and those who make policy to want to use their power for the sake of those who are poorest, to make good policy for the benefit of those who are poorest. Because policy written for the poorest in society benefits us all. Our society is fairer, happier, healthier when those who are the least well off are best cared for. Uh, Story time. Stats are boring, frightening, depressing. Um, I want to invite a story or two from... Uh, you lot, so I can catch my breath because I speak a bit fast. Um, uh, but I'll tell you one or two of our client stories. But I'm interested to hear what are you hearing from people in your congregation or communities about what poverty feels like at the moment, about what the cost of living crisis is doing at the moment. Uh, my friend Anthony's happy me sharing his story everywhere I go. He's very good at telling it for himself. Um, Anthony was in a desperate state before he came to CAP. We managed to negotiate on some of his benefits. We managed to get his creditors off his back. We managed to help him go insolvent, and that worked fine. And so he was one of our client storytellers telling the good news story of what life was like before CAP and what life was like after CAP. Brilliant marketing tool, brilliant story to show the impact of services and ministries like ours. But then he had his PIP withdrawn, and so he's £350 a month worse off than he was when we said goodbye to him, you're debt-free, that's money that he just doesn't have. That's not disposable income he's going without. He's needing to now borrow again, even though the insolvency was the thing that got him debt-free, and he's really worried about this. And with the energy prices going up, the custody that he shared of his two children with his ex-partner, he can't afford to have his children stay with him. The days that they weren't staying with him, he already wasn't eating, so he could afford to feed them on the days that he had them. And so there's a family that, with the best efforts of everybody involved, can't be a family. And that just hurts like stink, doesn't it? And that's going to get you bigger than any of those stats I just showed you. God, would you bless Anthony. We've got a couple of stories um, in terms of what the fuel poverty world looks like for uh, our clients. Um, And you're hearing lots and lots of it as the media picks up on this cost of living crisis. They're not rare anymore, are they? The, the stories that it used to pretty much just be us telling of our clients who uh, had moved their whole home into one room because they could only afford to heat that one, of clients who'd moved their bedroom from the back of the house to the front of the house so they could read by a streetlight and not need to spend any electricity in the evenings, and even of a client who um, deliberately only kept one light bulb in his home so he didn't accidentally spend more on electricity than he planned to. He would turn the light out, let it cool down, and take it to the room he was going to to, to see what he was doing. And now those stories just aren't rare, are they? And they're not just our stories as CAP to tell. uh, You will have heard some of this on Radio 4 this morning on the Today programme and the cost of living crisis. 
I wonder, before I share a little bit on some of the strategies we're developing to try and see an end to poverty and not just through our service delivery, though may God grow our service delivery, um, I wonder if we could take a few minutes to hear some stories from you beautiful people in terms of what you are seeing and hearing in your congregation or local communities. She is a single mum, she has two jobs, and she's in private rent accommodation, and they just uh, don't have heating. Um, and we support them, uh, but she's working, she wants to work, she doesn't want to be on benefits, and that's just one person I know. Another person I know, um, she refused to go on benefits, always wanted to work. That doesn't help with housing. We, you know, and uh, she gets herself into debt, and um, yeah, and and she just wants to work. She just wants to work, and it's impossible. Powerful, isn't it? How even the stigma around the social security system makes people who it was designed to help decide not to use it. Sixteen billion pounds a year of the taxes we all put in the pot for the common good are left in a pile. Benefits going unclaimed every year. There's no money, is there? No, no, there is money. There's sixteen billion pounds a year already collected, available, like left over from those who do claim the social security that they're entitled to. It's a right. I don't have a specific story, but we we run uh, several mobile food banks in Warrington. Uh, we did so right throughout the pandemic. People are genuinely terrified about the cost of living crisis. They are definitely, if they aren't already, suffering as a result of this. They can see it coming. They know it's coming. It's already started to happen to them. They know it's going to get worse. And what they see is nobody doing anything about it for them, apart from us. In the church that I'm in, we provide, uh, it's only twice a week, but we provide free meals uh, for anybody who wants to come, sit in the cafe or take away. When we started this work, it was during the pandemic. Now they are terrified of the poverty that's to come. In two years, uh, no, 18 months, we have sent out over 15,000 meals from that cafe. But seeing the fear that people are experiencing, it breaks my heart. There'll be dozens more stories because none of us are blind or deaf to the needs in our communities or in our own congregations. Uh, and some of us may be experiencing them for ourselves. Uh, perhaps for the first time, um, I, I'm privileged to not need to count every pound, but from this coming October's energy price rise, when my energy bill will be not far short of what my mortgage payment is, I'm going to start counting the pounds, because I'd still quite like the nicer things of life that are my privilege to be able to choose to have. But if even somebody on a good wage is needing to actively manage their money, God help us in the UK. We... We've got stats coming out of our ears. I've got loads more. We're releasing our annual client report um, on June the 20th um, to show our full stats for the last year, where some of those ones that I've shared with you today are, uh, are in there. Um, and we've got stories that we will tell our um, CAP speaker team who come out to local churches to uh, share stories about our ministry and to teach on why poverty is generally bad and that there is more that we can all do about it than maybe we know um, are excellent at sharing our client stories. Uh, and if you're already a supporter of CAP financially or through prayer, um, we'll make sure that we're regularly sending you stories of our clients, both of the situation they're in and also the hope that is available in, with God's help. But what about strategies? Because there's just not enough of us to go around to help the one by one by one by one because someone, something is chucking them in the river upstream, aren't they? And Desmond Tutu said an awful lot of amazing things. And one of them was about the, well, while you're getting them out one by one, I'm going up the upstream to see who's pushing them in. So what strategies are CAP developing to try and serve an, an even bigger vision? Um, it's not new, but it is refreshed. Um, it d just describes what we were trying to do all along. Uh, that's our refreshed vision that's in a different order to the slides that I'm looking at, but never mind. Um, CAP exists. We want to see transformed lives. We want to see thriving churches and we want to see an end to UK poverty. You can go back over the last 25 years and while you will not have heard us say exactly those words before, you will definitely see from our activities and services and ministries and how we interact with the church that we've always meant these things. 
Um, if you've come to any CAP events in the past, you may have heard our vision for X number of centres by date Y. We're Christians, church leaders all over the place do that kind of thing too. My church last three years ago, its last vision was to be a church of 300 by 2020, whenever, um, without an awful lot of why or how, but that we like numbers. Um, this means an awful lot more to me. This is a bit like that Wilberforce promise from God that he's graciously given me. This is something to stand there and burn with, isn't it? To see transformed lives, thriving churches, and an end to UK poverty. The transformed lives that no longer need to worry about being hungry, no longer need to worry about bailiffs coming to the door, and no longer need to worry about the, the loneliness and isolation that comes with debt and poverty. The thriving churches that uh, know that serving the poor is integral to the gospel. The good news of Jesus requires us to show his love to all, and especially the household of God. And a church, I would contend, isn't really thriving um, unless it's full of people who can tell stories as you good people just have. A church that has no stories of what life is like in poverty hasn't yet integrated into the community that it's based in, um, isn't developing the kind of relationships with people of all classes and races and backgrounds, um, and so has room to grow with God's help. So thriving churches and an end to UK poverty. And this was a bit that some of my colleagues found quite new. It feels really big. And how on earth or heaven do you do this? Um, and that's partly my job to try and help Cat work out what we're going to do. One of the first things we need to do is to work out how on earth do we show people that ending poverty is desirable? Because there are some bits of economic theory that suggest it's just unavoidable. It's a necessity in a capitalist society. Maybe. Um, uh, there's some would say the words of Jesus back to us, that the poor you will always have with you. And that can get a bit hard because arguing Bible verses with Christians is not my favourite sport. I prefer rugby. Um, but... You can get just as many bruises as you can, arguing verses with Christians as you can. That Now, there's just no way that Jesus in Bethany, the house of the poor, speaking to people who served the poor all the time in the week or three before his death, meant there's no point trying to end poverty. There's just no way is there. He was showing that worshipping him, and especially in that run-up to the cross and then his glorious resurrection, is the number one thing in all of life for all people everywhere. That's what he meant, isn't it? Like. Now, I could get that if you're maturing in your approach to the scriptures, that you've read a verse and so you th that's it and that's okay. But the arc of scripture is pointing towards a, a, a new heaven and a new earth with no crying and no dying and definitely no sodden poverty. All needs met. All needs met. Excuse my language. I don't know whether you swear at Elim or not. <laughs> um, so it's got to be desirable, and part of our job is to stoke that passion in the church and the world that poverty is bad, and it's a choice. Not a choice any individual makes to experience, but a choice that we as a society make every time we tolerate it. Every time we, we make those excuses, either from economics or from the scriptures, God help us, uh, or from our own practicalities. How po if, if poverty could be ended, that might inconvenience me. I might pay two pence more in on our basic rate of tax. I might, I might queue a little bit longer for the GP. Take up your cross and follow me, said our Lord and Saviour. So po ending poverty, desirable. So number one thing we've got to do is stand in front of people and burn like this and louder that it's desirable. The next thing, though, someone's going to ask me, how do we do it? <laughs> uh, and so we do need to show that it is doable. Now, it doesn't mean that there is one concrete route to show that the UK can follow to get out of poverty, but we can point our fingers to the things that work. Funnily enough, cash works. That £20 a week uplift um, was a genuine lifeline. So when we were joining many other charities and organisations to keep the lifeline, it's because we knew what that £20 a week meant. That wasn't helping people buy white sneakers and flat screen tellies. By the way, you can't buy a telly that isn't a flat screen anymore. <laughs> all, all of those tabloid readers' comments down in the, the comment section. Like, it is doable. It absolutely is doable. Social security was designed that we may meet one another's needs as a society. And while maybe in a perfect world a few hundred years ago, the social security of the state may not have been needed because churches and parishes and community organisations were more connected to one another's lives than our atomised society is these days, 
you can argue history all you like. We live in a society with a social security system and it can and should be invested in more effectively so that all of our needs may be met because all of us will depend on that social security system at one point or another unless we die before we draw down our pension. May it not happen. So it's desirable and it's doable and then the next thing is to show that <laughs> that Teddy Roosevelt quote, I'm not suggesting that we all need to run to be prime minister because there's only one job and I'm not entirely sure I want it. Um, uh, and I don't want to be competing with all of you good people for it, but what's your next step? What's their next step? What's the next step for your church and your friends and your neighbours? Because that's all God asks of us, to do what you can with what you have where you are, not just to s sit in rows hurting about how horrible poverty is, although I think lamenting the state of society is part of how we end poverty. I'm trying to find the next slide with my strategies. There we go. So I'll go back one. So what are we doing? We're doing a, a couple of different things. So one of them is about what we say, and one of them is about what we do. And I'm particularly involved with the top one there about what we say. Um, uh, I'm leading a piece of work called the Inspire Programme, which you don't need to know very much about. But essentially, it's trying to join up. We've got a long heritage in service provision. Our debt service, our jobs clubs, and all of those. A long history of providing services in partnership with the church to help people one by one by one, and in time, transform a community through the delivery of those services. And service provision is absolutely the mainstay of what Christians Against Poverty does, and it will always be through the UK church, uh, and worldwide. Cap New Zealand, Cap Australia, Cap other places. I volunteered to run Cap Mauritius. They, they, they weren't hiring anyone. Um, but it's not just through service provision, it's also through, get the alliteration, those of you who liked it earlier, it's also through our social policy, which is the work that my team uh, do. Juliet over there is part of our policy section looking at the problems of society and proposing potential solutions. That was hard to say. So our social policy work that informs the kind of um, media comment that you'll have heard me and others maybe on Christian and secular radio and in the press, trying to get the message out there that, hey, these are what the problems look like. This is what they sound like and feel like to clients and people with lived experience of poverty. Listen to them. And if you won't listen to them, then listen to me because I will tell you just as passionately as they will that poverty can and should be ended. Let's go. So service provision and social policy, partnering the two together is the new thing. So social policy work, not just being the stats of our clients show us that these two things are a problem and we need to tell people what the problems are. We're increasingly getting that appetite. We want to end UK poverty and cut it off at the roots. So we need to understand how it works. What drives poverty in the UK? Why is it 22% and so very sticky for years and years? Um, and then uh, it requires an element of strategic partnering because while we're partnered with 850 plus affiliate churches uh, and we're growing all the time, it's going to take us a very, very long time to get enough people in this army to actually do it all ourselves. There are a great many other people, churches and um, organisations that we can partner with, you can partner with, to help defeat poverty because poverty is more than just not having money. Let me tell you a little bit about the drivers of poverty. And I'll slow down a little bit because I was nervous about time, but we're doing okay. We've been doing some research. If I say to you, what are the causes of poverty? Some of you will think you have an answer, and some of you will shudder at the idea that there is a cause. Um, as Christians, the cause is the fall. The solution is the cross. <laughs> um, but that's a bit hard to persuade government <laughs> about. I've tried a little bit. Um, when you talk languages of causes of poverty, you get in a bit of a slanging match between red team and blue team um, as to what the causes are. Um, you might have seen a, the famous story this week um, that there's no poverty in the people who use my food bank because we make sure they do budgeting courses and we teach them how to cook before they get a voucher from us. Because that individual believes that the causes of poverty are a lack of education and a lack of skills. And there is no arguing that a lack of skills does seem to correlate with a life experiencing poverty but I believe it's fundamentally wrong to blame that individual for not having acquired the skills over time or that that is the cause of their poverty because a social security system that doesn't provide enough for our basic needs, um, a, living wa a national living wage that is not actually set at the real living wage level where like, decent level living standards can be expected for everyone, they could have had the skills and they'd still be poor because their employer doesn't pay them enough or the state doesn't provide for them well enough. 
So we've done some meta-analysis, which makes me sound clever. Basically, we read a lot of other people's work <laughs> and have found a way to synthesize it and present it in a way that hopefully is uh, easier to interact with. And we've identified there are seven main drivers of poverty, and that language is important, drivers. Whether they're causal or not, I don't want to argue with you. They happen next to poverty, and when they happen next to poverty, they make it bigger, deeper, worse, longer. And so if we reduce the impact of those drivers on people's lives, we will reduce the depth and length and impact of poverty. And in God's name, in his time, see it gone forever. Amen. Let me tell you what the seven are, just in case you're interested. The seven drivers of poverty. We have uh, reviewed um, think tanks from the left and the right and the centre, faith-based organisations, uh, spoken to some church leaders. We're speaking to some of our clients. We're speaking to colleagues right across the charity. And we would distill it like this. The level and design of public services, systems and services we all rely on, including but not restricted to social security, aren't yet accessible or sufficient enough for the needs of all in society. And that's a fundamental driver of poverty. It makes it bigger, worse, deeper. There are psychosocial and health drivers of poverty. You know, poverty makes you sick. Poverty kills you. Not just through suicide. If you're born, if you're a man born in Blackpool today, you can expect to live to the age of 58 healthy life expectancy to 58. If you're a man born in Kensington today, you've got a healthy life expectancy of 78. 20 more years of good health and then another 20 more years of life simply because you were born somewhere that was less deprived than one other place. I think God's got better for all people everywhere than that. The high cost of essentials and material deprivation. So this one's very relevant, isn't it, in terms of the cost of living crisis that now everybody knows about and cares about because it's beginning to bite on all of us. It's been around for a long, long time and impacting a lot of people that to this point not enough people have cared enough about. Pay skills and progression. So I touched on um, organisations like mine can sometimes sound like we just want the government to increase benefits and that'll solve all the problems. And that's kind of true. We do want the government to increase social security. But actually, it's all forms of income need to be set at levels that can, people can uh, like exist on. Ideally thrive, because I think God's best for us all is life in all its fullness, isn't it? And so something about pay skills and progression. How do we help people get jobs, get more work, get better work, not have to be on zero hours waiting for the warehouse to say it's going to be busy next month? Uh, how can we... I mean, there's room there for business to be one of the solutions to a driver of poverty, isn't there? It's not just charities and churches shouting at the government. There's room for all of us to play when we talk in this language of drivers of poverty. This financial resilience is a driver of uh, poverty, access to savings, um, inherited wealth. Um, access to uh, credit and insurance is a challenge that makes poverty deeper, worse, happen more often in some people's lives than others. We think that um, access to savings, credit and insurance with the ability, so that skills, knowledge and confidence, to cope with today, plan for tomorrow and dream of the future should be everybody's right. And being unable to cope with today or plan for tomorrow or dream of the future is a pretty good description of what life in poverty is like, isn't it? And we don't just want people to have enough for today. We want them to be able to know what they're going to do today so they can plan for tomorrow and dream of the future. There's relational resilience. Loneliness and isolation um, is a chronic connection with poverty and debt, isn't it? Um, I th forget the numbers, but it's something like 45% of our clients were scared to open the post or open the door because of the debt that they were in because they couldn't be sure who it was trying to write to them or get to speak to them. That also means that they withdraw from their friendships and community groups and relationships and try and deal with things on their own, don't they? And then there's systemic inequality. It's not right that if you are black or brown, you are... 1.6 to 3.2 times more likely to experience poverty than I am. It's not right that if you're female, you are 1.6 to 2 times more likely to experience poverty than I am. It's not right that if you're a single mum, you are 3 times more likely to experience poverty than I am. It's not right that if you're disabled or live in the home of somebody with a disability, you are twice as likely to experience poverty than I am. It's just not right, is it? Poverty's sexist. Poverty's racist. <laughs> Poverty exacerbates the differences in society, the inequalities that society and economies have permitted and allowed and looked the other way on for a long time. And poverty sits on that and exploits it, makes it all of them far, far worse. And that is evil and not of God. And I want to see it changed in Jesus' name. We've got to find a bolder voice as Christians, haven't we? We can't just do something. We need to stand there. 
Don't just do something. We do need more social action ministries right across the country. We absolutely do, because the need is so very great. But at the same time, we have to stand there and say enough is enough is enough. We will not stand for poverty anymore. We will do what we can with what we have where we are to see it ended in Jesus' name, along with the church and the rest of the nation. So that's the Inspire program. And then there's our debt service transformation Running a debt advice organisation was hard when we started. John Kirkby's famous story, our founder, is he had a £10 note in his pocket and a donated computer and he couldn't spell right. So the famous photo of him sat there says Chris Staines against poverty on his screensaver. If you've seen it or read, nevertheless, the book that describes our, our founder's story. So it was hard brute forcing that. And then we got bigger and that got hard and then we got regulated. Debt advice isn't something you can just do on the back of a fag packet and make up as you go along. The FCA, the same regulator of banks and building societies and financial services firms everywhere, dictates what we can and can't do in debt advice. And running a, a ministry in a regulated environment isn't very easy. It costs money. It takes a lot of time and skills um, and, uh, and money. And so we need to find a way to make our service one that's easier for the UK church to partner with that's maybe less costly for the UK church to partner with. We want to be able to help more people more effectively and partner with more churches across the nation to help more people more effectively because it doesn't matter how angry I get with a microphone in my hand, I can't shout poverty away. I do try most days of most weeks. Um, we are going to have to increase our service provision. We can't just score more goals, process more widgets. We have to find ways to make the service more efficient and um, uh, the debt service transformation program is help us build a platform to deliver that kind of service. I'm about to end and we'll have 10 minutes for questions if there are any. I mentioned, I mentioned that quote, don't just do something, stand there. And that for me feels like the flip side of the message. 20 years ago, you might have found some preachers saying poverty's bad or teaching about money from the scriptures. God bless every preacher who tries to do that. It needs to happen more in our churches. <coughs> 20 years ago, Christians might have been able to be stereotyped as standing there but not really doing anything. And praise God, I don't think that's accurate any longer. For some of us who are doing something, doing what we can with what we have where we are, maybe the call on us is to not just do something, though, but to stand there. Let's learn together how to articulate these kind of arguments about why poverty is wrong and unjust and evil and immoral and how it stains humanity. It, it, like it actively ages you. Living life in poverty has a similar, not quite as deep, but a similar effect to something called weathering, which um, doctors and researchers in uh, racial medicine have identified that um, black men and women age faster in white-dominated societies because living life with that much cortisol in your body, the stress of living life as a minority in, an, in a society that can tend towards um, the racist, um, actively ages you. Cortisol damages your body, makes it harder to fight off infection. You will die sooner. And the same happens for people who live life in poverty persistently. So we've got to find ways to learn how to articulate these kind of issues that that show how, look, we're doing what Jesus told us to do and we are saying <laughs> what he told us to say. We want to be able to announce the good news of the kingdom, a world that doesn't look like this world, it's better than this world. We want to be able to announce that there is always hope. And that's hard at the moment because I can get you debt free next week through insolvency, but you heard what happened to my friend Anthony. And so we want to be able to declare that there is always hope. And until we change the way some of these drivers work in our society and maybe even our own mindsets as individuals and as churches, we're not going to see it, only through service provision. And so we do want to see transformed lives. And we do want to see thriving churches. And we do want to see an end to UK poverty. My call to you and your churches would be, don't just do something, stand there. And maybe Theodore Roosevelt's quote, is the one that you want to be giving to your friends and fellow congregation members who didn't come to the conference this week and didn't, aren't in the room today. If people are frightened at the stories that they're hearing and the numbers that they're experiencing, you could give them Theodore Roosevelt's words to do what you can with what you have where you are. You could give them Jesus's words around uh, from, the, from those to whom much is given, much is expected. 
that he only requires from us faithfulness, doesn't he? Faithful stewardship of the gifts he gave us. And so if he gave you some money, I mean, he told them what to do, didn't he? If you've got two cloaks, give one away. It's not rocket science. We can read the book. Um, Let's do what we can with what we have, where we are. You've mentioned something called a fuel bank. What is it? How do we get involved with it? How do we uh, get people that are experiencing poverty in touch with it? What's this fuel bank? I've food banks I've heard of, but what's this fuel bank? The Fuel Bank Foundation is a charity that was established, I want to say, about five years ago. Fuel Bank Foundation. It's run by a friend of mine, Matthew Cole, who's got a similar journey to me. Worked in the energy sector for 15 years and then worked in the charity world to try and solve some of the problems that were just too big for him to get solved in the private sector. The idea of the Fuel Bank Foundation is that people in fuel crisis can be given a voucher to be able to immediately top up their prepayment meter so that no person, old or young, has to experience being cold, hungry and so on. Um, uh, a lot of their vouchers are delivered through uh, other organisations like food banks, through Trussell Food Banks and um, Independent Food Aid Network uh, food banks. We distribute them to numbers of our clients. Um, the Fuel Bank Foundation has some criteria about which organisations they can partner with to deliver vouchers on a similar model to a Trussell Food Bank kind of thing. They, the Trussell need to give you some guidelines in terms of who this can help and who it doesn't tend to help and what kind of criteria you as the people giving the vouchers that need to be meeting because there needs to be some assessment of the individual's need and that the voucher will actually materially help them. Um, but they're doing great work. Work has never been more needed. Fuel Bank Foundation. My church does a lot of international missions and as well as local missions in collaboration with other churches. However, I mean, God has been laying on my heart personally. I, um, the, the need to, to reach out to our immediate local community. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I was interested, I mean, the gentleman to my left here talked about the, the fact that your church runs food banks, for instance. And I was wondering how you initiate that. How do you identify the needs in your local community? This is huge. Uh, and the, what we're beginning to learn as, as Christians Against Poverty is that there's, there's more we can do as Christians Against Poverty. That We can stand and say, we do these services, which one would you like? Um, and, and I can do my thing. <laughs> um, but actually, helping churches do exactly as you've identified. How do we help you as churches do this well? Because a bunch of well-meaning people starting a ministry that they felt motivated to start doesn't necessarily meet a need in your neighbours' lives. And it can be a little bit meeting our own needs because we want to help than meeting the genuine needs in our communities. Uh, the best way to solve poverty is by centering the voices and needs and lived experience of those who are experiencing poverty. And so I applaud your efforts to focus on your immediate neighbours. Uh, we are looking to develop programmes through Christians Against Poverty to help equip churches to have those conversations with local communities in a way that kind of flattens out the power. It's not all the paternalistic of, hey, we want to help, tell us your problems, but actually, hey, you're rooted in this community, so are we. Let's talk about the problems we all share that together we might solve. So it's not quite the... Um, the old-fashioned Mercy Ministries model of let us come and help you and you become dependent on our help, but actually the more f the flatter, more kingdom-looking, I think, way of um, <laughs> the high being brought low and the low being brought high so that together we're equal in the eyes of God. That's kind of the gap, isn't it, with how some, of some social action ministries who are doing stuff are beginning to mature to help people work out, hang on, it may not even be our ministry that you need to partner with, and that's fine. We want to see poverty ended, and if poverty in your community would best be ended through meeting the mental health needs of people in your community, would best be met by um, equipping employers to, um, to provide better training. If that's the best way, then God bless you, and may you find someone who can help you, and maybe we can help you find them too. An end to UK poverty isn't actually going to make CAP famous. In the end, it'll put us out of existence, wouldn't it? So <laughs> that's, that's what we're after. It's his kingdom, not ours. We're very keen to serve the community, very keen to know and to learn what's going on, but also very keen to empower the church, not just our church. So if there is a food bank down the road or if there is CAP centre down the road that need volunteers, I, I'm delighted when folks from our church say, I think I'd, I'd like to serve the poor in my community. What a, and I, I love telling them to go up the road and go and help the church up the road because they've all got, always got trouble 
sorting out their rotors and the need is so much and so working as a kingdom church in our local community we're finding is really vital that we we share the load in that way as well and it may be that we need to start a new new food bank or a, a, a new cap center locally but it may be that as the church of jesus in our community we need to serve our community together and do it better uh, and bring our resources pooled together and i really pray that you you get more cooks you know yeah, and I'm good on. cooks can we put our order in uh, i'm coming um you know I, it's the kingdom church isn't it it's god's kingdom and let's do this together because i think that really is how cap is inspiring us as local communities and churches and and on the ground why not share our resources why not share our people who are the resource of the church uh, and we really pray that you find a way forward in what god is putting on your heart gareth you yabber really well and it's been lovely just to to spend an hour with you listening to to your passion and your story uh, you know god puts passions in all our hearts but hearing your passion i pray that it's it it doesn't happen on your deathbed that you look back but it happens before then that you look back and you see, wow, look what God has done. We admire CAP. We are grateful for the tool that CAP is to the local church in our communities. And, uh, you know, uh, we are grateful for the voice that it is, is now on a national scale. Uh, so we're going to just simply pray as we close. I think we're done on questions, aren't we? Uh, but thank you for being here. Um, thank you for the impact that you are, are making. You will never know. You'll never know what goes from this room into our communities. Father, we thank you for these words, this story, this passion that we see in this man. Thank you for his personal commitment to the vision that you have for our country, for our community, for families, for the faces that have come to mind even in this hour together. Father, our hearts ache. Just hearing the stats, our hearts ache. But how much more must your heart ache? And so, Father, we pray for the lost, the last, the least in our communities today. We thank you that you own the cattle of a thousand on a thousand hills. But you also own us. We're yours. Your hands, your feet. And so, Father, soften the heart of your church. May we have soft hearts and hard feet that would go into our communities and bring change. Father, I pray that as we apply your word to our lives, that we would practice new levels of generosity. Provide everything that's needed, God, we pray. So that we would see our communities released from debt and poverty. That we would see people living afresh with hope and faith and confidence in Jesus. Father, I pray that you, we would see those miracles, the M&Ms, as we heard this morning. That we would see the multiplication of food. That we would, as we give, keep on giving and not be able to stop giving because the provision keeps coming from you. Father, we pray that we may do what we can with what we have, where we are, in your name and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.